Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Today's guest is one of the most prolific lyricists working in theater today. For over 50 years, his words have not only brought vivid life to the musicals he has created, many of his song titles have entered the cultural lexicon. You do not have to be a musical theater maven to have sprinkled your conversation with Don't Cry For Me Argentina, One Night in Bangkok, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, and so many more. His stage works include Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Jesus Christ Superstar, Evita, Cricket, The Likes of Us, Chess, Blondell, which I have the LP in the other room, uh, Tycoon, <laughs> Beauty and the Beast, Aida, From Here to Eternity, and his film works include All Time High from Octopussy, Aladdin, The Lion King, The Road to El Dorado, and countless others. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Elaine Page, Hal Prince, Alan Menken, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Abba, Elton John, and so many others, here is EGOT winner, Sir Tim Rice. Sir Tim, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much. We are so happy to have you on. And Sir Tim, please tell our listeners, you also have a podcast now. Is that correct? Yes, I I began it in lockdown, um, and I'm on week seven. And once a week, I'm doing a 20-minute chat about aspects of uh, my long and murky career. And <laughs> um, trying to play one or two songs with it, but on the whole, songs that aren't incredibly well-known, um, which makes a change. I mean, if you want to go in here, don't crack me, Argentina, and I'd be amazed if you do, um, you, it, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to find. But um, I'm quite enjoying reminiscing about one or two past things, not all triumphant by any means, and right. playing the odd new song. So tune in. It's called Get On To My Cloud, tribute <laughs> to, to the Rolling Stones. I love, I love that. Get on to my cloud. So listeners, go ahead and subscribe. Kevin, do you have the album in front of you or is it in the other room, you said? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's in the other room right now. I wish I, I, I'll grab it a little bit later, but I have the Blondell album and I, I, I love it. It's, it's fantastic. Well, it's, it's quite fun. We keep hoping we can, you know, do that show again. And one day we will. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's done occasionally in amateur groups and schools, but it would be nice to do a sort of proper fun version with, you know, professional actors. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Now, yes, Sir Tim, where did this love of music come from? Well, I think my love of music came from a very young age, and it was really through 45 RPM single records. I don't know if you remember them. They were round black things with a hole in the middle, and you put them on a thing called a record player. <laughs> and a needle played them. It was extraordinary. And, in fact, before then, it was 78s, the breakable shellac, and I was just getting interested in music when um, Elvis got going. And his first records came out primarily on 78. They were on 45 as well, but but I would say that his sales for Heartbreak Hotel were almost as much as, as um, on 78 as 45, certainly in England. But I, I, I just loved rock and roll and pop music. And um, I, I liked theatre music very much, but I'd hardly ever been to the musical theatre. My parents had a lot of um, great soundtrack and and original cast albums of all the great shows um so i knew these songs pretty well carousel mm. oklahoma south pacific my fair lady um all those great shows king and i and one or two slightly less well-known english ones like grab me a gondola or, or oh, yeah. oliver which 
was very well known. And um, I loved Gilbert and Sullivan. So although I didn't know anything about musical theatre as such, I knew the songs. And um, it was purely, I mean, my parents were not that musical, funnily enough. They were more literary. Um, mm. And uh, they were quite happy with me borrowing their LPs. But um, I, I'm not sure they were completely into Elvis and Chuck Berry. And, the and what did they do for, for a living, if you don't mind me asking? I don't at all. Um, my my father was mainly in the aviation business. He worked for a company called De Havilland, the De Havilland Aircraft Company, who eventually became part of Hawker Sidley. And um, basically, they made airplanes um, since since way before the war. Um, and he worked at Hatfield in Hertfordshire at their headquarters. And um, my mum was a freelance writer. Um, oh. It was a kind of sideline because, frankly, she spent most of her time bringing up three rowdy kids. <laughs> and um, she wrote a lot of articles for um, newspapers like The Times. Um, she did one or two talks on the BBC. Um, and she wrote a lot of short stories, usually under, under different names, um, sort of romantic um, Mills and Boone type stuff. But it was a hobby and, and, and it was quite... Wasn't, I mean, didn't make a fortune, but, but it certainly paid the way, paid for a few bills. And what were the aardvarks? The aardvarks were a pop group I had at school, um, in, formed in 1960, I think. And um, it was just a group of us at school, boarding school, and um, we formed a group. We were pretty awful to begin with, and we weren't <laughs> much better when we finished. But um, we, we, we played at school concerts and school dances, and... Our heroes were Cliff Richard and the Shadows, who don't really mean a lot, or Cliff does probably, but 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 the Shadows, who are absolutely brilliant, um, his backing group, Cliff and the Shadows were the biggest act in, in popular music in Britain, or the biggest British act. But he was as big as Elvis, in a way, in, in the UK. And we used to do all the Cliff Richard numbers and play them at school dances, and I used to sing. And uh, we, had a, we had one guy who was really good on the guitar, and he kind of held the whole thing together. And is that what you th- is that what you thought you were going to do for the rest of your life? Was was no, to- I, I I wish I had thought that because I might have made a bit of an effort to try and do it, but um, <laughs> I I um, felt that as a you know respectable middle class chap in the United Kingdom, I should probably do something respectable like law, and um, I went into um, the law. Well, first I had six months in Paris at the Sorbonne, brushing up my French allegedly, and <laughs> I went to. Um, be an articled clerk was the, was the term in England um, to a firm of lawyers, and I failed my exams. So, after about two years of failing to become a lawyer, or failing to even get on the bottom rung of becoming a lawyer, I decided that as my only interest really still was popular music and the business of it, I knew all the labels, all the artists, everything. I managed to get a job at EMI Records, very humble job, but EMI were the biggest record company in the world at that stage, um, based in England, but they had. Um, all the great, I mean, had the Beatles and they had Cliff Richard in the Shadows and they had the Hollies and the Hermits and the Animals and Manfred Mann and all the uh, many, many groups of the British invasion. But before that, they had great artists, um, you know, going, going way, way back over the years who'd been successful, you know, from the 50s and 60s and a lot of classical records. And they had the deal for um, Capital, they owned Capital Records. So they had Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, all that, all that lot. And they had Tamla Motown in England. So they were a big outfit. They had the beach oh, wow. Room. You name it, they had it. And um, working in a record company was just heaven to me. And I mean, I was a very lowly management trainee to begin with. And what did you think the eventual goal was going, going to be I from this job? Know. I thought probably by about 2020, I would have just retired 
having to be head of head of EMI in Mexico City or something. Sounds know. like you loved it, though. It sounds like you, it was it yeah, was, it was no, exactly I, I, what you were looking for well, yes. you know, at that time period. I mean, I I, I was. It was, it's much more fun being in, a, being in an office where listening to records was something you should be doing. Right. You, you <laughs> yeah. should not be doing. Yeah. And of course, in those days, there were no Walkmen or, you know, personal stereos. There was no internet, nothing, none of that. So you could only listen to stuff on a record player or on the radio. And you couldn't, I mean, headphones barely existed. So uh-huh. it was something that in the lawyer's office, you could not secretly be listening to the Beach Boys. <laughs> Um, but in, in the EMI, you should not be not listening to the Beach Boys. Right. You've got to be yeah. up to date on your knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Were, were, was, were your parents supportive? Of... They were, actually. I think they were a bit worried when I didn't succeed in the law, but they weren't worried because they thought, um, you know, I ought to. They were worried that I was in the wrong job. Mm. And um, oh, they, were, wow. they were really very supportive. I mean, I kind of went into the law because I didn't go. I, I took a conscious decision not to go to university. I can't remember why. I think it was sort of, I just thought, I don't really want to go, um, which might have been a wrong decision but in at the time. But in practice, it worked out very well for me because if I had gone, I, I probably wouldn't have um, learnt fairly early on to get a job like in EMI, and, and I would never have met Android Webber. I mean, I might have done, but, you know, who knows? What was the first lyric, you, if you remember, that you ever put down onto paper? And what was the inspiration to, to, to become a lyricist? Well, I wrote a few, um, I mean, as a kid, I must have written a few terrible poems and, and, and this and the other. I always like writing things. Mm. But the first lyric I ever wrote, um, and I wrote the tune, believe it or not, um, I wrote a song called That's My Story, which um, was a sort of three chord or four chord, if you count D7, um, a three chord pop song. And and it was okay. I mean, there were a lot of three chord mega hits in those days, and still are. But today they're down to about one chord. But um, <laughs> it was it was um, while I was trying to be a law student or, or trying to be a lawyer, I still had this hankering to sing with groups, and and I did did occasionally sing with one or two pop groups, people I knew, or mm-hmm. break into a an act somewhere. I mean, all totally you know private parties was nothing remotely approaching fame or fortune. But I used to send, um, I sent a tape around of my voice. And because I didn't want my voice to be compared unfavorably with, with other singers who'd done the same song, um, I mean, I thought it, it, if I sing It's Not Unusual um, or It's All Over Now, they're going to say this is not as good as, as Tom Jones or Mick Jagger. But if I do my own song, which I wasn't really what I was trying to do, I wasn't trying to be a songwriter, um, then nobody can say so-and-so did it better because yeah. I would be the only person who'd done it. Um, but funnily enough, nobody, um, none of the record companies like me um, or my voice, but they, one company liked the song and um, sent it to a music publisher who got it recorded by a group, which wasn't a hit, but I had my, had my name on a record. And that was huh. about the time I was thinking maybe I should get out of the law because I've actually made a minuscule mark. I've, I've got onto the bottom rung of the ladder. And, so, and that was where your sounds like where your heart was too. I mean, you were yeah, doing yeah. law, but your passion was. Yeah, yeah. I wrote two or three songs, um, and that's my story. Was the one that got recorded, and oh. then I met Andrew. So, and he was already he was much more set. He was determined to, um, uh, you know, be Richard Rogers or Lionel Bart. And, and you met him because of your job at EMI. Not really. No, it's it's interesting because what's well, interesting to me. Um, uh, I, I was um, trying to do lots of other things, 
I mean, I was, I was still basically a, a failed law student, but um, I had this idea for a book on the history of the pop charts. And I took that to a book publisher who my mother knew. And he said, well, no, it's not a very good idea, which he was wrong because in the end, we, my, my brother and I and, and Paul Gambaccini did the book um, called The Guinness Book of Hit Singles, which was massive. Um, and people love lists. We knew yes. this, publishers didn't. And we were also very interested. This was, this was 1965. So pop music as something to be studied, mm. wasn't, it wasn't quite... It was still so day. new. Yeah. It, it was regarded as something that you would give up when you're 21. <laughs> rather than, 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 than a new art form. Craft, is, yeah. And um, I mean, my dad used to say, well, you know, it's all very well with Elvis and the Stones and all that. He said, but when you're, when you're 21, you'll get fed up with it. And I thought, I've only got two more years of liking it. This is very worrying. I believed him. But um, uh, the publisher didn't like the book idea. And I played in my record. He said, what else do you do? I said, well, I've written this record. And I played the night shift singing, that's my story. And um, he said, I don't like that either. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he said, I do know a young man who wants to write for the theater and maybe you'd be interested in that. And I said, oh yes, definitely. I mean, I, I was keen to do anything at that point. I was 19. And um, uh, he gave me Andrew's phone number and address and I went around and met Andrew. And Andrew was already, he'd written about five musicals. He'd written them at school. He'd just left school. And he was clearly very talented. And, and, and he said, would you like to write the words for this musical I've been writing with a friend at school but he's leaving he doesn't want to do that anymore so I've got to start again and I said fine mm -hmm. and that was the likes of us which likes got us. anywhere yeah. but it, was, it, it got us together and made us realize we could work together that's right and, well they and, eventually recorded it I think you know yeah it was right? funny enough it was recorded <laughs> um, there's a double cd of it yes. um, which we recorded in 2005 and um it's actually it sounds quite good I rather like it does it, it is but, I like it <laughs> we, we haven't got the book. Um, the 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 the, the storyline was 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 pretty um, thin, and um, Andrew's original. I, I don't think Andrew wrote it, but I mean the original structure of the show. Other uh, tunes were great, and some of the words were okay, but the tunes were really good. And but it was a very old-fashioned musical. It was very like Oliver, and yes. um, nothing wrong in that. Oliver's one of the best shows ever written, but it wasn't. We hadn't really found a style. I mean, I hadn't found a style at all because I never thought I'd be writing for a show. It's your first time, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And now, if you, now that you've written so so many songs, what do you know now that you wished you had known then when you first started writing the likes of us? Wow. <laughs> well, I think um, it would have helped if I mean what I do know now, and whether or not that would have been a good idea if I'd come in and said to Andrew, "This is what I know." Um, I know that if you want to get off the ground with a show you're probably better doing something which is um, funny or at least lighthearted, not too expensive to produce, and something which will appeal to a, to a fairly wide audience. These are all things which uh, Joseph had, but we, but we didn't consciously think that mm -hmm. when we wrote Joseph. Yeah. Um, but I, I get lots of musicals sent to me, and some of them have got good tunes in it. Um, good songs but they tend to be an awful lot of them are about rather depressing topics like you know <laughs> a lot of suffering totally serious topics which need to be thought about but you know mental health or you know or, or problems in society fine but i think if you want to get yourself into a position where you can write those things and be heard it's easier and if you can do it to get going with something that is funny and being funny and entertaining 
is just as important, in my view, as probing tragedy. Um, it, it's all part of the great tapestry. And yes. um, uh, the other thing I did not know with um, when I was writing The Likes of Us, and I don't think Andrew did either, really, was that the book, the story, is the most important thing. We weren't, I was writing the words, he was writing the music. We didn't really have a proper book. And um, a very distinguished writer called Leslie Thomas was brought in to give it a go. But I think he realized that fitting the songs that we'd done into something coherent wasn't really going to work. Um, mm. And we never really ended up with a decent book. Um, but if we'd had a, I mean, I now know that if you have a musical with a good story and the so-so score, that's got a good shot. A musical mm -hmm. with a great score and a dire story probably won't make it. You've got to get the story, and, the, and obviously the songs should be, or the, the music and the lyrics should be part of that story. And I didn't know that then. Huh. And what prompted you to then continue on writing another musical and another musical and another musical? Well, we wrote The Likes of Us. Well, Andrew had already written great chunks of it, and the publisher, a chap called Desmond Elliott, sort of took us on as, as agent, and he was a brilliant book publisher. But to be honest, he wasn't, a, he wasn't really a big cheese in the theatre world. That, that didn't really matter, I guess. What, what the problem with, with The Likes of Us was it just wasn't quite good enough. It was nearly good enough. People who listened to it said, hmm, yeah. And I think a lot of people said rather tactfully, well, you know, that's great, but maybe you should try something else. You know, i.e., you two guys, we think you've got something. We're not sure what, mm -hmm. but maybe you'd be okay if you tried something else. And we, we thought, oh, no, The Likes of Us is brilliant. And this is going to be a big hit in, on, on the West End and then Broadway, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Um, and, and we were still believing that when a schoolmaster approached us out of the blue. I mean, he was a friend of uh, Andrew's family. And he said, while you're waiting for West End and Broadway, which obviously is going to happen next week, but while you're waiting for that, could you write something for my kids? And he'd heard our demos of the likes of us because we had this demo LP. And it, it didn't sound too bad. I mean, I've still got it and it's, I play it occasionally. Um, but what really um, got us going, as, as, as I'm sure you know, was Joseph. But it was the fact that we were still, we still thought the likes of us had mileage when we were writing Joseph, which we thought was just a throwaway thing for a school. But when Joseph began to take off, right, and get us a proper management, right. we then thought, I mean, the likes of us sort of faded away. And when you say began to take off, well, how did it go from being this? I mean, I know it's much has been written about, but, you know, to hear from you. Well, how did it go from being a school production? Well, you, it, it, was, it was a long story and quite a slow one in a way. Um, we, we wrote a song a week for Alan Doggett, who was the teacher. And um, mm. the kids loved every song. And the funnier we made them and the more and the wonderful catchy tunes that Andrew came up with, the more they loved it. And we did a school concert. Um, it was only about 25 minutes long at that point, and the mums and dads loved it, which is unusual, apparently, <laughs> for school concerts. And um, uh, we, we were encouraged to do it again and, and try and get a bit of publicity, and we did it in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a big hall in London, took it out of the school, got all the school involved, so we had a built-in audience of mums and dads, and we did a few ads, and it, we, we brought in a few people. I mean, it wasn't a sellout by any means, but... One of those performances, or that it was the second performance ever of the show, um, got a rave review in the London Sunday Times, which was we hadn't, we hadn't invited anybody. They're to allowed to review that? I mean, that's well, crazy. Well, the guy, 
well, yes, in my view, because it was a rave. <laughs> he said, um, he went along, he's a guy called Derek Jewell, and we owe Derek a lot. I mean, sad to yeah. say he's long since died, but um, lovely man. And um, he kind of spotted Joseph and he said, this is, you know, he, he'd come along because his son was in the school choir. We didn't know that. We didn't know which one his son was anyway. And um, his son must have been, I'm guessing, 9, 10, 11. And Derek came along and we had no idea who he was or we didn't know he was there. But the next week in the Sunday Times, there was a column, his music column, began with a rave review of Joseph quoting some of the lyrics and saying, these two guys, you should, you should look out for them. And then that, in, you know, having tried with the school concert and writing letters to music publishers and educational book companies saying, this is something good for schools, mm-hmm. having uh, no interest. When that Sunday Times review came out, suddenly we were being pestered and we had a record deal offered and we had a publishing deal. Um, and so Joseph got going very slowly and we then put a record out about, Six months later, of, of of the entire show, we wrote a couple of more, a couple of new songs Pulled to out, yeah. bring it up to 30, 35 minutes, whatever it was. Sure. It's still quite short, and um, the record got wonderful reviews and didn't didn't hit the pop charts really. Um, but people began to take an interest. We got one or two covers on the songs. Um, an English entertainer who was very popular called Max Bygraves had a big hit with it in Australia with one of the songs, and it was clear that this piece. And we had something, even though it hadn't made us any money. But what it did get us was decent management. Um, and a, um, Andrew sent the album to a um, philanthropist who was backing, he was a property man, but he was backing um, pop stars and musical theatre. He loved show business. And he hadn't really had much luck in that department. But he, he, he brought in a lovely man called David Land to sort out his investment in, in music. And Andrew had sent, um, Sefton Myers was his name, Andrew had sent Sefton this album of, of Joseph. And Sefton gave it to David and said, what do you think of this? And David said, get rid of everybody else you, you've got on your books, just pay them off and stick with these two guys. And we did a deal. Um, at this point, I had a job um, with an EMI. I actually left EMI, but I was with Nori Paramore, who'd also left EMI, and he took me as his PA. Okay. And... We were offered a deal, which meant I had to give up my job, which um, I did rather reluctantly because it was a bit of a gamble. But we were offered enough um, payment, £2,000 a year um, each. Uh, It it was easily enough for for me to give up my job. And um, we had three years guaranteed income from Sefton Myers and David Land. And we had to write something. We were very lucky. Joseph... It hadn't made us any money at that point, but it had got us a record, which was a great calling card, and it got us decent management. And they backed us, and it was a question, what are you guys going to do now? And the first thing we did was, was funnily enough, a forerunner of Blondel, which wasn't very good, um, another oratorio for schools, but it wasn't as good as Joseph. And um, I was, in fact, my last podcast talks about um, how Superstar got going, and I uh, friend of mine in the music business who I'd mentioned, I mean, I'd had this idea for Superstar, or not, it wasn't called Superstar, but I had this idea of doing something about Judas Iscariot Mm. um, way, way back, um, way before I met Andrew. And a music friend of mine who I'd mentioned it to four or five years before, I'd forgotten about it almost. 
And when I, when I ran into him, because he was playing me a record from Joseph that he'd recorded, a song from Joseph, he said, what happened to your idea about Judas Iscariot? And I said, oh, yeah, right. I, I'd kind of forgotten about it. And I said, yes, um, it, it was a good idea. But uh, when I had the idea, I, I didn't have anybody anywhere doing it. I, I, I thought it might be a play or a book, or, and I'd done nothing about it. But now I had a chance to do it because Andrew was a very talented composer. We were looking for a topic. And Andrew thought it was a great idea when I mentioned it to him. Uh, why didn't you mention this before? Or type of thing. <laughs> and um, I, I forgot about it. it was the answer. And um, we we began working on Superstar, but we couldn't get any theatre people interested. So we had to make a record. And of course, we therefore created rather a good way of launching the show by mistake. Let's talk a little bit about your process, if we can. Um, what is your preference, that you come up with the lyric first and then a composer sets it, or you hear a melody first, or does it vary depending on who you're collaborating with? Well, of course, it depends on whom I'm, whom I'm collaborating with in the sense that, um, I mean, Elton John is the obvious example of somebody who will only write when he gets a lyric. And all his great songs have been written, whether they've been theatre songs or film songs or rock songs or straightforward pop songs, they've all been written to a lyric. The lyric has inspired his music. And that's great in a way because you don't have a rigid format. You can sit down and write something mm -hmm. and you can make the lines as long as you like or you can have the rhyming pattern you like. Um, of course, once you've written verse one, then you've got to stick with that framework for verse two, three, and four. But of course, if you can't get verse two to work, you can just play around with verse one and et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes that can be easier, but there's a danger of being long-winded if you don't have a tune. The great thing about a lyric should be that it makes the point concisely if it can. If you've got a tune that already exists, as Alan Menken or Andrew prefer, then you've got to get your thought into nine syllables or whatever it is. And the emphasis on has to be on the right, you know, the the the, the, the um, beat of the syllables and this and the other. Um, but in both cases, if you're talking theatre, the key thing is to get the story right. If you haven't got a good story, you might as well forget it. I mean, I've never been very good at writing one-off pop songs because I can't really. It's very hard to put myself in, into a position of of writing um, a love song, say, when I don't quite know who the characters are or any sort of song, yeah. whereas if I'm writing for a lady on a balcony or for a warthog with wind problems, I know precisely what their problems are. Totally. And Ava Perron's problems and Pumbaa's problems were not identical. And then when you when you write, are you um, do you lock yourself in an office and you're going to write down on a legal pad? Do you take long walks? Uh, when, when do you... Well, most of the time, you, you or I sit down and... It's, it's like doing an essay at school. You've got to hand it in by five o'clock or whatever. Um, deadlines help. If you've got somebody ringing you up saying, where's the, where's the words? Um, but I think you can get inspiration. I mean, what I will do is I will go somewhere. I mean, I, I can't write with anybody else in the room, and I, and I can only write the only music I, I have on, obviously, is the tune I'm working to if I have a tune. But, of course, after a while, you don't need that because you've learned the tune, so you don't really need it. Um, so... I, I, it is a solitary thing, but certainly I would say, oh, God, I have two hours, I can't listen, and I, and I might go for a walk. I've got a um, very nice dog who takes me for walks, and um, uh, that, that can clear the air occasionally. But you, 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 you've, you've got to really like the tune 
and if there is a tune at that point, or you've got to like the story, or both. You, 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 you have. I need the inspiration of something more than just the other half of the song. Of Do you play the piano? Ish. I can play enough to keep me happy, but I can clear them pretty quickly when I sit down at the piano. <laughs> and do you like having your? <laughs> do you like having your, your composer in the room with you as you're crafting yeah. something? No, segregated. Well, I, <laughs> I don't like having my composer in the room, even if I'm just you know having a drink. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. Um, well, no, with Andrew, um, when we wrote Evita, um, I wrote a lot of it at his house. Um, and also a lot of it in, in, in a hotel in, in France. We went away to write it. And um, what would happen is we would usually have a discussion. We'd say, right, this scene is so-and-so. And Andrew said, I've got these tunes. And I'd say, that is, I think, the best of those tunes for this scene. And then I'd get the tune, usually put it on a, on a, on a, on a cassette recorder or something. Or I might have even got it in my head strongly enough. Then I'd go into the next room in his house or in the hotel or my room in the hotel. and write it and then come back but I couldn't write it um I I, I couldn't write it if, if he was sort of, sort of sitting there whether he was reading the paper or playing the tune or whatever but I might come back and say look I'm I just can't get one line could you just sing what I've done and see am I on the right lines so but a lot of the stuff um was written without any direct contact at the time I mean as, as I said we, we, we would be um talking about the song um, this is, I'm talking about Andrew and Alan Menken now. I would then go away with the tune and then maybe come back with a finished lyric. With Elton, it was it was pretty remote in a way because I would write the words and send them off to him and he might be in anywhere, New Zealand or whatever. Um, he's nearly always been on the road. And somehow within about two days, I'd, I would get a um, CD. I think we were just about into CDs by the time we were working together. I'd get a CD back. Um, with with a great vocal and singing singing my words, which is extraordinary. Um, but, I, but we were never in the same room. Although, having said that, I was in the studio when he wrote the tune to Circle of Life, which was a great experience. He was just in the studio and just came up with it in the studio. Well, I mean, I'm I'd, I'd written, I was working with The Lion King. I was on the on the team pretty early on. Yeah. Um, and I had a meeting, the first meeting I had in Disney was... It's me, the producer, the director who actually left the project and went on to something else, mm. and four or five people, and one one drawing of a of a, of a wicked lion. There wasn't it was vaguely probably going to be called King of the Jungle, which was a rotten title because there's no jungle in the story, <laughs> and um, uh, it was a very very shaky start, and it might not have, might never have happened, but gradually um, we realized this was a good a good story and and and, and could work, and we. Um, uh, once it was clear that the film was probably going to be Disney's next animated feature, if we get the story dead right, um, they said to me, who would you like to write the music? And you can't have Alan Menken because he's working on Aladdin. And I said, well, you could try Benny Anderson, but, the, um, but I don't think he'll do it. Um, I said, but I was going to say it's, it's a toss-up in a way between Benny and Elton, but I think Elton would be absolutely spot on for it. Mm. He'd brilliant you couldn't do better I said but you won't get him I thought Elton won't be interested he'll be and also the deal won't be good enough anyway Elton rang me up a week later and which is great he said oh what's all the king of the jungle then I said well it's a you know said listen it sounds great and thank you so much for recommending me but um 
the deal is terrible and I really can't afford to do it. And I said, I fully understand. And then two days later, his manager rang up and said, when do we start? And I thought, ah, he's got a better deal than I have. (laughs) (laughs) But I was so excited because he would have been absolutely perfect. Um, and uh, it's because of you (laughs) and he was perfect and well he's always been very gracious and always thanked me for recommending him because it did give him a second string to his career I mean he's had four Broadway shows which three have been big hits he's had um, uh, you know uh, film scores and things I mean of course he didn't need it in one sense but I think it it introduced Lion King for example the album introduced him obviously all the Elton fans bought it but a lot of people who were too young to be Elton fans bought it you know, for their kids, so you know, or, or five-year-olds loved it, and that was great. Yeah, exactly. And right. uh, and he wrote. I mean, getting onto the circle of life. I mean, um, yes. I I'd written the lyrics of Circle Life. We 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 wrote quite a lot of songs that didn't make it, not necessarily because they were bad, but because the storyline changed and the plot changed. And I was very much involved with being part of the script team. My lyrics yeah. had to fit the script, and thing about cartoons is you can axe a character you can get rid of a giraffe who might have had a big number and then the giraffe's agent ain't going to complain right (laughs) whereas they can do whatever they want (laughs) so things kept changing and suddenly a song one had written for one character or this i'm terribly sorry this this character gets eaten in the second reel so he's not going to be singing that song um so we we had a couple of goes we I did a lighthearted lyric for the Circle of Life originally, which we knew was going to be the title of the opening song. They liked the title. Right. Um, and then I thought, no, it should be more, you know, be slightly more serious. And, and I said to Elton, and the Disney guys loved the second lyric. I sent it off to Elton. And, and um, I, actually, I didn't send it off to Elton. I said, Elton, I've done the lyric. And when are you next to him in the studio? And actually, I hadn't quite finished it. Um, and he said, oh, I'm going in on Thursday. This is like Monday. And I said, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you tomorrow. He said, no, 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 just bring it along. So he, he, I thought, great, I've got three more days to finish it. Right. And it was nearly finished. And I went along to the studio in Air London, um, Air London studio in the middle of London. Mm-hmm. And there he was. He got there first and he was with his piano and with Guy Babylon, one of his, one of his band, giving him different rhythms, you know, because he, he wasn't quite sure what sort of rhythm would, would best suit the song. And he saw the lyric and he began singing the lyric over and over again. And I just listened in the, in the control room. And, it, and in about an hour and a half, he, he, he wrote this wonderful tune. And at one point he said halfway through, could I have one more line? Uh, fine. And I said, uh, on the path unwinding, which somehow worked. And um, it fitted in perfectly. And it was just a great, one of the great songs he's ever written, I think. Yeah, oh, I quite agree. Um, and of course. That was the words coming first. And I rather like the words coming first sometimes. Yeah. It's freer Which, for you. Yeah. Is there a song that you've you've created that for you feels like a great summation of your life philosophy or a, 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 a lyric that you've written? Side, probably. Which, which one? What did he say? Side or you have to learn to live alone. These are rather slightly downer songs. You have to learn to live alone was from a show I wrote called Starmania, which um, you mm. wrote now. But um Nobody's side. I mean, there's quite a few. High Flying Adored, um, that was really written as much about when you make it, you suddenly think, uh-oh, now what? Mm. Yes. And, uh, you know, I mean, but a lot of songs have a certain um, aspect of my um, experience in it. Um, 
some don't. I mean, pity the child doesn't. Um, my mother never liked pity the child because it was rather rude about the character's mother. Yeah. But a lot of people have said to me, gosh, that song really was something that, that, that I've been through. And I was very mm. flattered by that. Mm. But I was putting myself into in, trying to put myself in, into the position of somebody who might be in that situation. And you obviously not every song you write is going to be your, your situation. I mean, um, don't cry for me, Argentina. I have never stood on a balcony in a dress addressing 10,000 people in the public square. But right. you have to imagine what it would be like to do that. But I have witnessed a lot of, you know, pretty grisly political speeches, which sound nice, but when you actually think about it, don't actually say anything. Which right. is, don't cry for me, Argentina. Sounds beautiful, but she's not really saying anything that <laughs> Yeah, That's the idea. Some, I mean, one critic said, a terrible song. It's a string of cliches. I thought well, that's exactly what it's meant. the point. The <laughs> point. Do you read reviews? Do you? Like I mean, to... we never thought that would be a hit single. I mean, that was extraordinary. That it was out of context. It became a number one in England. And, and isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah, and, and it but, did. But if we'd sat down, if Andrew and I, if Andrew come up to me with his tune, which is a great tune, right. and said, "Let's write a song." I mean, write lyrics to this. It could be a great hit. <laughs> I would not have written "Don't Grab Me, Argentina." I would have written something right. really darling, I love you tomorrow or something. It would have been awful. Um, <laughs> but this specific song, it's so specific in its circumstances and what it's talking about. And yet you're right. How did everybody love yeah, to hear it? But hey, good I mean, song. That, 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 would, that was a big pop hit. And it was not, um, if, if you, you know, DJs used to play it, particularly in America, say, I don't know what that song's about, but I like it. <laughs> I thought, well, I've written a lyric, which they don't know what it's about, but... I don't care. It's number three on the charts. <laughs> Take it. <Exactly>. Take it. <laughs> exactly. Hello. This is Audrey Hepburn. Welcome to Crackertown Dinner Theater and Grill. Audrey Hepburn, this is Ann Miller here, and I'm disgusted. What are you doing in a place like this? It's all I could get. I didn't know about Patreon.com. I didn't know you could go there to set up a monthly donation to keep going. Well, the boys at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's living legends, like me, they know, and their listeners do too, they go there and set up a donation and they donate all they can. Oh, Patreon, it's wonderful, but will you be having the prime rib or the chicken? I'll be having Patreon. Now, I mean, we all have these, I think, in our lives. So I'm going to ask you, is there a song or a lyric that every time you hear it now, you go, oh, my gosh, why did I do that? I wish I could go back. I wish I could fix this. Well, there are odd lines in mm. in, in one or two songs. Yes, definitely. But not, I mean, sounds a bit arrogant, but not that no. many. Um, <laughs> in High Flying Adore, there's an emphasis um, when she sings at the end of the song. I don't know well, you know the song. It's in the Vita. Mm-hmm. And she sings, no one else can... Um, do it like I can. And it should be, um, actually, I can't, is it do it? I can't remember what the line is now, but no one else can and do it like, it should be I can. And and the emphasis emphasis on the tune is I can. Can, yes. Um, uh, one thing I'll say for me, no one else can do it like Fill I can. it? No. Yes. Fill it. Fill it. That's it. Well yeah, done. Let's fill, fill it. it. Mm-hmm. You know it better than me. <laughs> Talking about a gap. Fill the gap. I was lucky. Yes, that's right. Me, and, it, and if you spoke it, you'd say, no one else can fit it like I can. But when she sings it, it, it goes, no one else can fit it like I can. Which You're is right, not, completely. No one else, yeah, you wouldn't think to sing it with the emphasis on that. Because 
not too many people have noticed it. <laughs> yeah, you're fine. But, um, you're fine. Odd, in, certainly in Joseph and even in Superstar, the one or two in the early days, one or two not perfect rhymes, which I would not let through now. Mm. Um, in any dream will do, may I return to the beginning, the light is dimming. Not quite right. But, <laughs> but it's such again, a good lyric, who cares? <laughs> well, when I, when I, well, thank you. But when I've tried to change lyrics in old songs, say, well, hang on. They, no, 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 it's our favorite one. You can't change that. So yeah, people, okay. it's done. And, yeah. But, but I, I don't think I would try and, 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 and write a, a non-perfect rhyme now. Um, at the very end of Chess, um, there's a lyric, I'm, I, I, You and I, which is a nice song. Um, Beautiful song. And I'm always oh, 2% thing. I shouldn't have had that title because it's been used before. Um, but it ends up, um, stories like ours have, have we, but we go on pretending, stories like ours have happy endings. Mm. And it should really be, have a happy ending. Um, stories like ours have a happy ending. And I was, I should have said to Benny, look, please, can we just put that extra syllable in the tune? Because, and then, and, and I, I don't know, maybe I said that to him and he said, no. <laughs> I'm curious. That, that's, that's a question I'm wondering, because with all your different collabor- collaborators, that, that, I imagine that comes up. Can we, can yeah. you change your music to fit my lyric? How does that conversation go? Well, Is it usually, it depends I on the writer, I'm sure. I would very occasionally um, suggest that and from what I can remember with I mean obviously the key people who, in that position would be Alan and and um, Andrew mm. I'm sure I have suggested it and I don't remember having a fight about it but sometimes they may say well we do think that's very strong tune and often it would just be putting in an extra turning a crotchet into a quaver or the other way around or whatever um, and I think by and large they would, they would go along with it um, but I wish with chess I somehow said let's let's just because it's the last it's the last line in the show but i think by by the time you get to that point people either like the show or they don't so they're not going to say oh i love this show and they're the last line (laughs) (laughs) now how did the idea for avita come about well i i knew from a very young age weirdly i knew about ava peron i knew she was Mm. a um very very important and loved person in argentina from my stamp collection as a child but I didn't know much more than that. And I, uh, we'd, we'd done Jesus Christ Superstar, which had been a big hit. And it was, it's a tough one to follow. And, you know, any hit's hard to follow. And I was in my car driving to a dinner and I got lost slightly. You know, this is pretty, no sat nav, none of that. I was just driving around and, and I heard as a result of that, I heard the beginning of a program um, called... Um, what was it called? Something like Heroes of Our Time or something, or, or you know, Idols of Our Time or whatever. And it was this week, Ava Peron. I thought, hmm, interesting. And I heard the first five or 10 minutes of it. And then I, then I got to the dinner and I couldn't hang around and wait half an hour. So, and I, and, but it struck a chord with me, this program, because I'd heard nothing about Ava Peron in England um, since my stamp collection. And frankly, when we wrote a Vita, um, nobody had a clue who she was, certainly in England. I mean, obviously, they knew her in Latin America and in Spain and places like that. But um, in England, we kept having to say who she was. Um, but, and a lot of people say, well, it's a rotten idea for a show because nobody knows who, nobody knows the story. With Superstar, they said it's a rotten idea for a show because everybody knows the story. So you, you can't win. Um, but 
Ava Perron did appeal to me. I thought it was a very fascinating tale. And the more research I did, the more I thought this, this could work. And I thought, if I like it and I'm a regular punter, other people might like the story. And then how did Hal Prince get involved? How did it go from being a concert album to a well, concept album to, into a stage show? Well, we decided because of the success of Superstar's album leading to a show, and we, we did the album for Superstar really because we couldn't get a show, um, we thought, well, let's do it again. Now we're better known. We can we can do the album first. Yeah, concept. And um, Andrew had wanted Hal to do Superstar. Um, I'm ashamed to say I was so ignorant about theatre. I'd barely heard of Hal Prince. I didn't really quite know who he was. Sure. Um, but, I mean, I'd soon found out, and, of course, he was brilliant. Um, but Andrew sent a Vita off to Hal um, shortly after we'd finished recording it, before it came out. And he said, this is really interesting. I like it a lot. Um, and he sent back a few notes and um, he said, let me know what we can do. You know, I'd like to meet you next time I'm in England or vice versa. And the album was a massive hit. Don't Cry Me, Argentina was the number one single in England, not in America, right. didn't that well in America. Um, but Hal came over and, and we talked about it and he said, I'd love to do this, but I can't do it for another year. And we thought, mm. but in actual fact, the year rushed by and having a year's wait in England was, was, was good because the, the records continued to sell. We had another hit with Oh What a Circus, another one with I've Been Surprising Good View. The, everybody wanted to see the show and we thought, well, thank God we're in the hands of Hal Prince because he's brilliant. And there were lots of, and, and we cast it and it took a long time to get everything together. Um, and it was a brilliant show. I mean, I, I honestly think the opening night of a beater in London was, was, was the peak of, of, of my career in a way because it was, it, it kind of proved we weren't one-hit wonders, and it was a good score, good show with a brilliant direction. And um, so that was great. After that, it was all downhill and tragic. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where the interview ends. No. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so then we're so curious about Chess, uh, which is a show that had an, uh, Michael Bennett was slated to direct it originally. Yes, and then Chess uh, was a bit of a cock I'm afraid. Um, the album did really well. It yeah. did quite well in America because One Night in Bangkok was a big hit. Um, and in England, we had a number number one with I Know Him So Well. The album did really well. Bjorn and Benny of ABBA, huge names. And it is a good album, no doubt about it. And we did a concert tour with the album um, when it came out, and that was wonderfully successful and went really well. And we were getting lined up. We had everybody wanting to do the show. We had producers, directors ringing me up, and it was great. But... The trouble was we had too many chiefs and not enough Indians. And mm. in the end, we went with um, the Schubert organization, who were, who were great. But um, they wanted um, Bernie Jacobs, um, who was running the show at the time, and, and, and Jerry Schoenfeld. They wanted um, Michael Bennett. And basically, Michael Bennett was, was – I'm not sure Michael was actually that keen to do it, but but because he'd, be, he'd been through a bit of a rough time personally and everything. But I think Bernie and Jerry persuaded him. and. We had a few meetings, with, we had a lot of meetings with Michael and, and it, it looked like it was going to be quite exciting. Um, but we'll never know because he got ill and he pulled out when we just cast it. And what we should have done in retrospect, which was said, right, we're putting the show off for a year. Um, we didn't know that, that he was fatally ill. It was terrible. We, we, but we did know that he was not able to do anything for the next however. So we went ahead and, and Trevor Nunn came in and Trevor at very short notice, got the show onto stage with the cast he hadn't cast, with a set he hadn't organised. And it, it was, in a way, we had two shows fighting 
per space on, on one stage, and it cost a lot more than it should have done. And it did okay in London. It did quite well. Um, it got its money back. It ran for two or three years. Mm-hmm. But it was it never really had a, had a chance, and we'd all agreed it would need to be changed if we go anywhere else. And it was changed for New York, but changed, changed pretty disastrously, and um, it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, the the show keeps going. It's always been done everywhere, um, and I think you know we, we we're currently we weren't you know before the pandemic we were talking about a revival um, on Broadway, and that may well happen, but it ain't going to happen immediately. But the songs have continued to be very popular. Oh yeah, what's what is the vision of the show that you wish New York audiences or even London audiences had seen? What, what, what was your intent? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not really a director. I'm not a director at all. I, I'm not sure what my vision was. I'm, it, 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 it kind of, I mean, it worked so well in concert. I think, well, let's do it as a concert. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've seen some productions of chess, which have worked really well. And I've seen some which have been absolutely horrendous. But, um, I mean, I've seen it done in Hungary and, and on, on an island in the middle of the Danube, and that was really good. Um, it's been done in Japan. It's been done everywhere. Uh, and in most countries, it's done okay or very well. Um, but in New York, it was, it was, I'm afraid, didn't do very well. Although, funnily enough, it, it paid its way. It only ran for eight weeks, but it, 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 it was quite full for the eight weeks. And I think each week it made a profit, but it got no Tony nominations worth talking about. So as a result, the producers panicked a bit and said, well, this ain't going to work. So it was pulled off. And probably quite rightly. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was too long and a bit didn't quite work. But it was a good cast, Judy Kuhn, people like that, fantastic. Oh yeah, great, great group. Um, and then how do you how do you like to work with a director? So you and your your composer have crafted something and now there's a third party coming in. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not really good with directors. I mean, I would say my I would like to sit at home and be told you can come in now. It's we're, we're ready. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, I think if you appoint a director to a great extent, you have to let him get on with it. Um, and uh, obviously, I ha- one 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 has views, but I felt with Evita in particular that um, going to the early rehearsals that well, this is looking pretty good, frankly, and um, I don't think I can help. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I would say, well, if we needed line changed or something. I mean, the one or two um, little changes we had to make for the stage show, and we, and we wrote one new song, actually. Um, so things like that. I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy, of course, to work with them. But you, you, you. Sometimes I think, well, if you're not a director, keep your trap shut. But, um, but directors are crucial. I don't think. Um, I mean, if 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 a piece is really bad. Um, then I don't think the greatest director in the world can save it. Um, but if a piece has got some merit, um, if you've got a good director, he'll he'll bring that out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a, a, a director can ruin a good piece. Um, I don't think that's happened with us, but I mean, it's possible. Where did your relationship with Disney come from? How did that all come about? <laughs> well, I was loitering around Disney. <laughs> I try to remember why, um, but it As was you do. yeah. They were talking about, this is way before the film actually happened, they were going to do the movie of Evita. Uh-huh. And um, that never actually happened with Disney, although Disney ended up distributing it, I think, you know, many, many years later. And I met um, through a friend of mine, Brian Robertson, B.A. Robertson, who was a um, uh, uh, very talented Scottish songwriter who was doing a, an album project with them. And I was, I was in L.A. for 
whatever reason. And um, Brown introduced me to one or two um, Disney heavy honchos, but I'd, I'd, I'd also met them anyway, like Jeffrey Katzenberg and people, because they were thinking of doing the film of Evita. And uh, I said, if you need any words for a film, you know, I'm around. And they offered me a deal um, to be a sort of standby lyricist, as far as I could tell, for about, and it was quite a nice deal. It was, you know, I got a certain number of dollars a year. It wasn't an absolute fortune, but um, they said, well, we might well need you for something. And I, I, I worked vaguely in an advisory capacity on a Dolly Parton film, but didn't actually write anything. And, and, and I got to know a few people there. And then because of the enormous success of Little Mermaid and um, Beauty and the Beast, they decided to ramp up their, you know, um, area, the animation department. And um, they wanted to do this, Supposedly, you know, this is this is this is this is where we came in. They wanted to do this film about Lion King, you know, about a, a lion whose evil uncle kills his father, Hamlet with fur, as we were told. Um, and they said, when I was in when I was enrolled, um, they said, "Would you like to work on this?" I said, "I love Disney cartoons, which is true. I grew up on them." And I said, "I would love to work on one." And they said, "Well, here's the one." And that, then I went in and met these Lion King people, or the King of the Jungle people, and that was when I suggested Elton. And um, so that was how I really got involved. And of course, that turned out to be a massive hit. And at one point, they pulled me off Lion King briefly and said, we need you to work on the Aladdin, which was currently in, in production. Because I, I, they said, Alan Menken won't be doing the music for this new film because he's doing Aladdin. And we're now going to do films at a much quicker rate. We're going to try and get one out every year rather than one every two years. And um, Aladdin um, was written by the genius Howard Ashman and Alan. And Poor Howard died, um, and I was suddenly asked to go over and meet Alan, and would I finish off Aladdin? Um, finish off in the sense of complete it, rather than <laughs> completely kill the film stone dead. Um, and uh, I did. Um, I met Alan, we got on very well, and we wrote A Whole New World, but then weeks of meeting each other, and that was a bit of a turning point there for is, me yeah. and for um, Disney, in a way. I mean, it was a massive... So it was a very good film. It is. And I, I have to ask when this is such, to me, it's such an odd I- idea that, you know, you have to go in and finish something that somebody has already created. Yeah. Did you try to, did you try to emulate his voice any? Well, did I, you, I, how I, did... I knew, obviously I had to make my words mix in with the ones Howard had already done. Um, and there were a couple of songs, brilliant songs he'd done, which, which, which were in the, in the film already. And, because songs get booted out and brought in and this and the other, but there were a couple of major major production numbers that were definitely going to be there. You know, a friend like me, um, in particular, was the one I loved. Um, but I was and, and Prince Ali and all that, and I was obviously aware that I couldn't suddenly start delivering, you know, Bob Dylan or Sondheim lyrics <laughs> if, if I could. Um, but funnily enough, I, I always felt that Howard and I had a rather similar approach to writing lyrics. I think Joseph, in particular, is rather like a little mermaid in, in style. I mean, and Howard was very witty and he had, um, you know, great wordplay. And um, so I didn't have to fake my style. I mean, I, Howard is one of my favorite lyricists because, probably because I, I Felt that was my my neck of the woods, um, so. But I, as I said, I had to be aware that what I wrote had to fit in with the. You know, you couldn't suddenly have a sudden jolt of a completely different style, and of course, the whole film was held together musically by Alan's great music, which 
was one guy. Yeah, the thematic, yeah, the length that goes through. Yeah. Um, you know, out of any composer that's ever walked this earth, living or dead, who would you love to have collaborated with on a song? Wow, you mean who I haven't collaborated with already? Yes, I mean uh, the, the people you've collaborated with. My God, yeah. but is there somebody living, dead from the from the annals <laughs> of history that you would go, my God, yes, I would well, do that. Um, I would uh, Barry Gibb. I've always, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a good friend of Barry, and we've often spoken about doing something together. The thing is, Barry annoyingly writes very good lyrics as well, so <laughs> <laughs> he's very annoying. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a great fan of Barry Gibb. I mean. Um, Trying to think of, of 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 a chap who only writes tunes, who 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 I would like to write with. Um, I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm I'm talking of a long time. You're talking about doing something with Rick Wakeman, who's a who's a wonderful um, uh, classical and rock composer. Mm. Um, no, there are lots. I mean, it, it's it's very difficult. I mean, I've been very lucky. I've worked with with Bjorn and Benny about, but I've worked with Alan Mink and Elton John, Android Webber. It's not a bad lineup, really. Oh, no, really. no, that's not like. Yeah. Any one of those, my God, Track please, record. any, any yeah. one of those. And so now, what are now that you know we're still all in, in this quarantine? What are you doing to fill the time? What projects are you? Well, I've been doing my, my my podcast, which has been quite fun, which takes up a day a week, if not maybe about a day a week. Good. Um, walking a dog. Um, I'm uh, working on um, slowly on another book of my memoirs. Good. I was going to ask. Yeah. Please do. Only one never came out in America. Um, I don't think anywhere, not officially. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I get quite a lot of mail about it. I mean, not a lot, but you know, yeah. People say people, people have read it in America. They, they, they know about it. And, and oh yes. I'd like to write um, a bit more there. Um, I'm. I did a show in 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 England not that long ago called From Here to Eternity, which um, didn't yes. quite work but we've got american it's played a couple of times out of town in america and i i think i think that could work and we're working on seeing if we can get that on that'd be great but you know the world doesn't need too much more of my stuff frankly disagree 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 we want more we're we're, going to disagree with you we're going to disagree with you so tim this has been an absolute pleasure i cannot tell you how much we both appreciate you taking well, time out to speak to us i'm so sorry that i was a bit late in uh, coming to oh, the please nothing. please and you know before i go i have to ask did you did you work on the fan hearts not diamonds yes, did you... <laughs> yes i funny enough it was on television in england not long ago and i watched it um most of it it, it i i love lauren bacall it wasn't the greatest film of all time um and uh, I, I did a couple of songs with marvin um, and they, they, they were they were fun. There was um, a remarkable woman and um, hearts, not diamonds. I, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, how can I put it? Lauren McCall is one of the greatest voices of all time, but maybe not when she's singing. <laughs> <laughs> um, although she, I mean, she was lovely, and and and, and I was I uh, thrilled to meet her. But um, it would be quite fun. Maybe one day I'll, I'll I'll ask somebody else to have a go at one or two of those songs. But um, I'm very proud of them because Marvin Hamlish was a good friend of mine. I should have mentioned him earlier. We we we, we often talked about maybe doing a show, but we never got around to it. And oh, I wish. Devastated when he when 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 he died so suddenly. It was all so yes, very so suddenly. suddenly. Yeah, my friend was working with him. Yeah. Day, I'd seen him quite soon before um, when he came to England, did a couple of shows, and, and, yeah. and we met up again and had a catch up. Yeah. yeah, good man, a, a good man. Yeah. But th- thank you for that. That sh- that movie comes up a lot on this podcast, and so we're very <laughs> yeah. excited. Oh, really? It does. Well, it does. Yes. Yeah. I thought it was. 
I mean, Lauren McCall was great, but I thought it was a little bit of a gruesome film in a way, but it was fine. It, but your music is fantastic. This, I mean, and the lyrics are, the songs are great. This has been so wonderful, sir, Tim. Thank you. Thank you so much. And please. Thank you. Yes. And, and hopefully we'll all be back in a the theater again soon. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. Yes. Oh, the other thing I'm working on is Aida. We're looking to get Aida back. Yes. That's what I heard. Yes. Yes. Good. Which all is right. wonderful. For the next interview. Yes, <laughs> for part two. When, yeah, when, talk about when, for sure. When the second part of your autobiography comes out, we'll bring you. We'll bring you back on, and we can talk about it. Until then, please listen to Sir Tim's podcast. The title again, Sir Tim. Get onto my cloud. Get onto my cloud. Get onto his cloud. He's waiting it. for you. Let's give him some subscribers. All right, till everyone. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor, and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.